0: have a wife in Ukraine, Western Ukraine, stepsons that live in Kiev. I woke them both up, told them that the assault had begun. My stepsons lived on the outskirts to the west of Kiev in a high-rise apartment building. Uh, the apartment building was bombed.
1: More than a million people have fled Ukraine since Russia's invasion. It's the largest mass exodus in Europe since the Balkan War in the 1990s, and the UN warns that number could reach 4 million in the coming month. After the break, we'll take a look at the refugee experience with one of you, John. John is in Poland with his wife, but his stepsons are still in Ukraine. We touched base with John, and we'll have that conversation in just a moment. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story— A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save
2: 10%, go to BetterHelp.com 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories
3: reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're talking about the war in Ukraine. Here's John's story. His family has been caught in the conflict. We checked in with him. John says it took his wife 18 hours to get to the border crossing where he met her in Warsaw. When we heard that initial message, he was in Poland with his wife, but his stepsons are still in Ukraine.
0: I was waiting to find out what border crossing they would be going to because there was traffic that in some cases people were waiting over a day in, in their vehicles to get to the border. Uh, so uh, once they identified a border crossing where they could get to rather quickly, relatively speaking, so that she could then go ahead and cross. Her sons stayed behind. Uh, Then at that point, I made reservations for a hotel, uh, and the nearest hotel I found was uh, 60 miles away. She was about 50 feet from the line, and I thought, that's good. An hour and a half, she'll be up to the front. She didn't cross for another four and a half hours, Mm -hmm. just because that's how many people just jam-packed getting in. And, and so the taxi driver waited for her for 3 hours after after uh, he actually got there
1: you you mentioned your wife's sons um ukraine isn't allowing men between 18 and 60 to leave the country but you say that is correct your stepson's also wanted to stay and and fight i would imagine that was a right. very difficult decision or in in conversation for your family
0: oh absolutely uh, i mean Personally, myself, it just uh, heart-wrenching because I can imagine at the moment that they uh, said goodbye, uh, my wife not knowing whether she'd see them again, my wife not knowing whether she'd ever be home again, Uh, difficult, difficult choices. Uh, In fact, several weeks before, my wife was distraught and as we talked on the phone, uh, she cried because she said she was thinking about my parents that had left uh, Ukraine uh, during uh, World War II. They weren't married at the time. They were both young, uh, but they were taken by the Germans as as essentially slave labor uh, as the Germans retreated. Uh, the last time, because the Germans and the uh, Soviets uh, had gone back and forth a few times over, over Ukraine. Uh, and so they left their homes behind, they left their families behind, um, never see them again. And so she was worried that that same fate might befall her. And uh, and although we believe the Ukrainians uh, will defeat the Russians, and that we will be back there. There's always the risk that we might not.
1: Have you been able
0: to remain in contact with your stepsons? Uh, yes, fortunately, uh, communications are still open, uh, so we're still able to talk to them, uh, get updates, and not only with the stepsons but with family that we have in Eastern Ukraine, where the rate where the battle is raging. Um. And I've talked, uh, communicated with people around Kyiv, um, uh, around Sumy. Which, uh, uh, from our, from the last word we have, the Ukrainians have pushed the um, Russians back to their border. Although there's still some towns where they occupied. So yes, we've been able to communicate.
1: So for now, you and your wife will remain in Poland until you can. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, we're we're remaining in Poland. Uh, there are um, there's just lots and lots of refugees, and and, and, and the Polish people have been very opening, uh, or very open, and um, welcoming. Uh, and and there's Ukrainian flags everywhere. We just passed by a side of a building where they're just uh, finishing off painting a, a, a Ukrainian flag that's probably about 50 feet by 30 feet and uh, writing in no war on it. Um, so uh, a huge amount of support by the, by the Poles. They're, of course, rightly worried uh, that in the event that Russia is successful, that they won't stop there. They're just going to keep their march because they feel that no one's going to stop them.
1: Well, John, thank you for speaking with us. And please stay in touch, okay?
0: Uh, you're quite welcome. Thank you.
1: That was one a listener, John, who joined us from Warsaw, Poland. Let's go now to the city of Lviv in western Ukraine. NPR's Layla Follow is on the ground there. Layla, thanks for making time for us.
2: Of course. Thank you for having me.
1: So we heard there John's stepson stayed behind to fight in Ukraine. You've been speaking to volunteers like them in Lviv. And there you met Yulia Kravats and her little brother. They were weeping and hugging their father. And you asked her why she was crying.
4: It's uh, our father. He was in uh, Donbas, Donetsk in 2014-15. Uh, and now he's going uh, to the war again and I hope that uh, it will finish soon because we need our fathers here in our homes and we hope uh, that our father will come back alive.
1: Leila how is the strain of this war affecting families on the ground in Lviv and elsewhere in Ukraine?
2: Oh my gosh I mean a week ago there wasn't a war in this part of Ukraine. I mean, there's been an eight year conflict in the East over these separatist regions, Crimea, but a week ago, life was normal for these people. And all of a sudden now there is an invasion by a superpowers army into Ukraine. And so People's lives have turned upside down. Over a million people have crossed the border trying to get out, to get out of Ukraine. Others are trying to get out. Men from 18 to 60 years old under martial law cannot leave Ukraine. They are expected to possibly fight if needed. In Lviv, which is relatively safe, it hasn't come under the attacks that we're seeing in the capital, in um, Kharkiv, in other parts of Ukraine, it's sort of become a base for shaping resistance with people from all walks of life, whether they're extremely liberal, apolitical, extremely conservative, extreme ideas, no political I- political ideas at all, really chill people as they self-describe themselves. And now, you know, I met a guy who was painting houses last week. He described himself as chill, he'd go home, smoke hookah, watch TV. Now he's mass-producing Molotov cocktails at an abandoned factory in the middle of the city. That's his way of contributing to the war effort. We spoke to people um tra- escaping when we were on the border with Poland, who sat in freezing conditions for 48 hours in these long car lines trying to get into Poland. Some came on the train, which usually would be a two-and-a-half-hour, maybe three-hour ride. It took 15, 16 hours, no standing room, and it's mostly women and children escaping on their own, le- having to leave their loved ones that are men behind. One young man that I spoke to, actually, he talked about, he's 16, and he talked about having to decide whether to stay in Ukraine with his father and face possibly dying in front of him or watching his father die or leave Ukraine with his mother to safety. So really difficult choices, lots of danger, and lots of families being separated.
1: What have you heard from the people who are staying behind to fight?
2: There is a sense of unity and the sense that they're in it kind of alone, even though they are getting support with weapons and things. They're fighting this army alone, and so everybody is trying to figure out how to contribute in the people that we've been speaking to. They also feel like they are in the middle of what is a proxy war between superpowers. One woman I spoke to as we took the train from uh, Shamashil, a border town in Poland, into Lviv, said it feels like there's a global game going on between Russia, the U.S., and China about recutting the map and power. They want to be part she says, of the Western democracies. And the, the West has to decide whether they're part or not a part of it, whether they win or lose. That's how she put it. But she was also going back because she has something to protect, which is her son. So she had been on vacation in Milan. The attack began, which gives you an idea of how caught off guard so many people felt when the invasion happened. Um, and she was going back to be with him. Before we let you go, you, you've covered
1: other wars. You were the Baghdad bureau chief for McClatchy newspapers. What strikes you about the U.S. response to this invasion compared to its response to, to other invasions?
2: Well, I mean, I think I will talk about the way um, this, this is talked about. Um, I think there has been a lot of concern that, that there isn't as much concern about lives and refugee crises that come out of Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria. And there should be concern for all of them. Lives do matter, right? And so that, um, has been a concern that I've heard voiced about coverage of this. Um, and I've been very cognizant of because these, this crisis that I'm covering right now, It is awful, and it is the first time for so many people, and it should never happen to any population. And unfortunately, I've seen it before. We watched what happened in Afghanistan six months ago. We spoke to displaced people here in Poland, uh, in Poland, sorry, I'm in Lviv now, who were from Afghanistan, created a new life in Lviv three years ago, and now found themselves stranded on the Polish border trying to figure out a new safety but safe place. And so this happens to communities, and it is always a tragedy.
1: That's NPR host Layla Fadl reporting from Lviv in western Ukraine. Layla, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Let's bring in a few more voices. Historian Kimberly St. Julian Vernon is a Ph.D. student at Penn State, specializing in Ukraine, Russia, and Eastern Europe. Kimberly, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Also with us, Kurt Volker, a former U.S. ambassador to NATO and the former U.S. special representative to Ukraine. He's now a senior international advisor for the Center for European Policy and Analysis. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you. Well, you've both been listening along as we heard from Richard and now Layla, And I'm curious to hear from you first, Kimberly, if there's anything that stands out to you and what you've heard so far.
5: I think the biggest thing that stands out to me in um, and, and much of the coverage has been the lack of discussion or the more recent discussion of what's been happening to students from Africa, India and the Middle East um, near the Polish border. And I think the context that we've heard has been important where throughout um, the, the border, we are seeing a crisis of people having to wait. 20 to 40 hours to be able to get through. Um, but African, Indian, Middle Eastern students have been discussing very real instances of racism in which they're pushed to the back of the line. They're verbally harassed and assaulted by um, Ukrainian officers and, and Polish border officer, officers. So I think like this is also an important context in which the war and the chaos at the border Um, In many ways, racism is being exacerbated in these really chaotic situations.
1: The World Health Organization warned Wednesday that a critical supply shortage could cause even more Ukrainian civilians to quote die needlessly, and this includes a critical shortage of oxygen, insulin, and other medical supplies. We got this email from Carol, who says, "Would someone please ask why we are not conducting a supply airlift? We need to support Ukraine. We are guilty of the same actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and look how those turned out." Ambassador Volker, we've heard a lot about the U.S. taking things away from Russia, but help us better understand what the U.S. is providing Ukraine right now
4: yes um, we are uh, doing a lot so let's not understate what's happening. Uh, we're providing uh, anti-tank weapons we're providing some anti-aircraft weapons basic ammunitions uh, we are flying uh, supplies to Poland and then they're being driven in. Uh, we're also providing humanitarian assistance as well as a lot of American private organizations providing that uh, providing that as well. Um, when I say there's more we could be doing however, Uh, I I think of times in the past we've implemented a no-fly zone. For instance, when Saddam Hussein was going after the Kurds in Iraq, uh, we defined as a humanitarian need the need to deny skies to attackers, not attacking anyone ourselves, but providing a safe space there. Uh, I think that's something we should be considering. We should be considering more types of armaments for the Ukrainians. Uh, A-10 attack aircraft in particular, I think, are, are valuable um there is the provision of real-time intelligence to the ukrainians we could be doing that and i think we could help establish a much more stable and secure corridor connecting poland and ukraine for the transport of humanitarian assistance and security assistance Uh, because um, it is a little bit ad hoc right now and i think your caller makes a good point
1: kimberly you've been following the stories of ukrainian refugees and helping to connect them with resources are there any common threads you're hearing?
5: Yes, um, there are two big common threads. And I have to really you know, impress um, upon many listeners that we are seeing instances of racism. Um, and we are hearing you know, really harrowing stories of instances of racism against African, Middle Eastern, and Indian students, but also Roma, who are residents of Ukraine and citizens of Ukraine, who are trying to leave. And this is incredibly important. But I also want to impress that a lot of the information that's going around social media, including the really popular videos, are a few days old. And so we really need to pay attention to the -the on-the-ground information we're getting now. The students in Sumy State University have been the the latest hashtag on on Twitter. And I've been in contact with these students for a few days and working with local Ukrainian contacts on the ground and the Sumy State University administration to make sure these foreign students are fed and, and they have water. SUMI has been under Russian attack since this began, and it's very unsafe for foreign students, but also Ukrainians in general, to be moving about and going about right now. Um, So I would impress upon people to really try to follow those accounts and listen to information with people who have contacts on the ground and not react so much to some of this older information because things are changing so quickly on the ground. Um, Along that, I've heard really good um, stories and experiences of African students who've gotten into the border in Romania, who've been welcomed in Romania, who've had no problems. Um, I've also heard good um, stories from people who have made it through the the border with Poland and have gotten free passage into Poland and have been fed in Poland and in Hungary. So I know the stories um, and the videos that we're seeing are disheartening. But there are, you know, a lot of good stories that are coming out of this. And a lot of African students are getting taken care of.
1: I want to bring another voice in right now. Richard Enser is the Ukraine correspondent for The Economist. Richard, thank you for making time for
3: us. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: So tell us where you are and and what you're seeing and hearing from Ukrainians who remain in the country.
3: Right. Well, I'm in Lviv, and that's of course uh, far west of the capital, Kiev, in Ukraine. It's it's actually quite close to the Polish border, and of course, as you know, Poland means EU territory, NATO territory, sanctuary. So this is a, of course, a, a city that's on the way uh, for a lot of Ukrainians who are fleeing, and of course, the numbers we're seeing. It's you know we're we're probably a couple of days away from this, even just the the last week of migration flows being the the biggest numbers we've seen since the second world war anywhere in europe um you know you speak to ukrainians and it's it's you know the the scale of the stories the the memories and the hopes and the fears is is really hard to fathom but the one thing that you definitely hear a lot is just i I want to get out i want to, to, to protect myself and You know, clearly, Vladimir Putin. There's no, there's no depths that he will not plumb, and we just need to make sure that we can get to safety.
1: We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations. Download our One A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save
2: 10%, go to betterhelp.com 1A. Over this last year and a
3: half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's get back to our conversation on the war in Ukraine. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, spoke to CNN earlier this week, and this was his message for Vladimir Putin.
2: We was in
4: USSR. We don't want back to Russian empire. We see our future as democratic, modern uh, European country. Is it? No discussion. It's our goal. We're fighting for that. We're fighting for our country. We're fighting for our dream.
1: Richard, earlier this week, Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky filed an emergency application to join the European Union. Where does that stand?
3: Uh, I mean, it's it's a nice gesture. I, I don't know if anything is going to come of it. Um, you know, if you look at the way that Ukraine has behaved in the past week, Ukrainians from the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, down to the typical uh, citizen or, or, or you know, residents, the, the amount of heroism that's been on display on all of our social media feeds and on the nightly news has been, you know, enough to move many of us to tears, um, really. And I think... It's fair to say that uh, you know the the Ukrainian people have been better exemplars of traditional European values on a scale that most card-carrying members of the EU could only imagine. Um, that being said, you know something like EU membership—you know there are there are legal guidelines and and, and uh, requirements to join such a club. Um, you know I, I do not expect an emotional decision to to let them to to let the EU um, to let. Ukraine into the EU anytime soon. It may be the kind of thing that is created and then given up at the negotiating table, but uh, that doesn't really matter. What what we have learned in the past week is that Ukrainians are not only European, but they're more European than all of us.
1: Kimberly, you've been in contact with people evacuating Ukraine, and, and what are they saying they need right now? What is it? Is it access... Uh, Or is it support getting out of the country? Is it support once they arrive in in a safe
5: place? What are you hearing? Um, For people evacuating, it really seems to be transportation to the border um, and and help getting through the border and with the processing. But from what I've heard, once they are through the border, um, they are getting resources such as food and further transportation into Poland and, and Hungary and Romania. Um, I'm not sure about other transit issues once they already are in country, but from the few I've been able to talk to, um, a few of them have actually returned home, um, you know, to to various African countries. So I think the critical thing is the infrastructure not being there from getting to the border and and dealing with you know, issues on the border. They need food, they need water. We're seeing very long wait times. So I think that's the critical thing right now.
1: And Richard, again, you're on the ground in Ukraine. What are you seeing when it comes to this this emerging refugee crisis?
3: I mean, emerging is one way to put it. One million people have already crossed the border. Um, you know, the the since 1945, the, the record is 1.3 million in an entire year. And that was in 2015. Uh, the EU expects in the next five months to rack up a total of 4 million, I mean, that is just a scale on which, you know, we've, we can barely comprehend at this point in time. And it's just as well that so many people are feeling like they wish that there is something they could do to help Ukrainians, because that kind of goodwill is going to be you know, ve- very, very much uh, in demand um, and needed in the months ahead, as we see. Potentially a kind of twin humanitarian crises—one inside Ukraine and one out of it. The people trying to flee and trying to get to safety, and potentially needing help starting a new life, and then the people trapped or, uh, you know, not yet willing to leave back home, uh, who are also facing shortages either through sieges or supply shortages. Uh, really, you know, quite quite a grim road ahead, no matter which way you look at it.
1: We got this email from Heather to that end, who says, I I would love to help. We have space in our home that is unused. Is there a program in place that is bringing refugees to the U.S.? If so, I'd love to get in contact with them to see if our place could be of use. And Barb tweets, where do you recommend donating to help Ukrainians? Uh, I'd love to hear from you on this, uh, Ambassador Volker, and also you, Kimberly. Ambassador, go
4: ahead. Yeah, so I think uh, there are a number of organizations that are already up and running trying to provide humanitarian relief to Ukrainians. Um, If you go to the Ukrainian embassy website, they have uh, uh, information about that there. And the one that I would particularly recommend is called Razom, R-A-Z-O-M. It is well known in Ukraine, it's very reputable, and they get the humanitarian assistance delivered. Uh, Also, you have uh, the International Red Cross, of course, which is operating out of Poland to try to get things to Ukraine.
1: We got this email from Robert, who says, In a negotiation, and this is a negotiation whether we like it or not, it is important for both parties to save face. I keep hearing about what more the U.S. should do. Most of it, in my opinion, would lead to World War III. What can we do to allow Putin to back down, quote unquote, gracefully, so that this can end without relentless escalation? Ambassador Volker, what do you think?
4: Well, unfortunately, I I don't agree with the premise that Putin would accept anything other than a military victory. Uh, He has committed himself to this military path, committing unspeakable acts uh, with the military against civilian populations. I don't see him accepting any kind of face saver. I think he is genuinely out to destroy Ukraine as a country and take it over. And that's why it's important that he be stopped. Uh, he's made clear in his statements to his National Security Council, an essay he wrote back in July, uh, public comment since then. Uh, he is not looking for a face saver or an off ramp. He is pursuing a military conclusion here.
1: Kimberly, we talk about Russia, but you lived in, in Kiev and in Odessa when studying in Ukraine. What is something you think the U.S. is missing or misunderstanding about Ukraine?
5: Um, I think the key thing is is that this will be a long and drowned out war. And I think we're we're learning now because Ukrainians will fight. They will continue to fight this as long as possible. But I think another part of this is the cultural and historical destruction that we're seeing and the long term effects that this could have on Ukrainian cultural sovereignty, but also its history. After, I mean, during World War I, during the Soviet Civil War, during World War II, archives and museums and cultural institutions were destroyed in Ukraine, and we haven't been able to reconstruct those. So I think we can also pay attention to like, this element of this war that is destroying this culture. We got this tweet from Ted,
1: who says, what could it mean to defeat a country like Ukraine? What would the occupation of a country of 40 million look like by another country of fellow Slavs? Can Russia really hope to garrison Ukraine with 200,000 troops, half of which only support the other half? Ambassador, there's a lot to unpack there, but what do you make of that tweet from Ted? What are the long-term implications of a Russian occupation in Ukraine?
4: Well, um, as uh, uh, our our colleague at Penn State just said, um, the Ukrainians will fight. So there will be an internal insurgency fighting against a Russian-occupying government. Um, The way the Russians, I think, envisioned this is to decapitate the government, to kill Zelensky, the president, to install, uh, shut down the parliament as well, shut down the Rada, install their own leader, and empower that person to... Then be issuing decrees in Ukraine to try to create some form of governance, snuff out pockets of resistance, gain control of all the major cities. Um, they are having a very hard time moving on those objectives. It may be, as the caller indicates, that they underestimated the amount of force needed to do this. Uh, 100,000, 200,000 may not be enough. They have more that they can bring to bear they haven't committed to that yet Um, and if they were able to do what they want and gain control of governance in ukraine and use the military and intelligence services and secret police to repress people uh, you would be uh, having essentially a a totalitarian state that they would try to control uh, as the ukrainians try to mount a resistance It would be bloody, brutal, awful, and it would uh, continue a state of conflict and tension for a long time. Richard, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I agree. We're in a sense of um, you know lots of things collapsing at once, and it's just a matter of time to see what collapses first. You know, there is an admirable Ukrainian resistance, which uh, you know, as its defenses weaken, will will start to buckle, and then. a uh, 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 an inner circle in in Vlad- uh, in Vladimir Putin's corner which is being you know, thwacked with sanctions and you know possibly uh, leading to uh, leading to the possibility of a, a palace coup or, or oligarchs or other advisors having second thoughts and then of course you've got the the dynamic at the, the you know the, the groundswell of Russian society um, facing really um all kind or manner of different oppression including the possibility of the declaration of martial law um, so you know instability at every turn and and what you know a lot of things look like they could be tottering quite soon and whichever one kind of kills over first uh, could really decide not just the future of uh, the outcome of this immediate war but really the the, the world order in in, in a way
1: well, Russian forces are surrounding several major Ukrainian cities, including Kiev, and a second round of ceasefire talks are happening right now in Belarus. Richard, what will you be watching for in the days ahead?
3: Um, I'm going to be watching for, uh, obviously, the, the population centers, Kharkiv and Kyiv. I'm going to be looking at how well the Ukrainian defenses hold up. I'm going to be looking at the morale of Ukrainians, whether that morale starts to sap as these in increasingly indiscriminate and barbaric uh, military tactics that the Russians are using um, is causing people either to flee to save their own lives or at least become a little bit more pessimistic about uh, Ukraine's ability to win this war. Um, I'm going to be looking at, of course, Russian society to see whether uh, you know, v- Vladimir Putin's calculus uh, remains the same and whether he feels like he can hold on at home or whether he feels like he's threatened and needs to either back down or lash out. And, of course, uh, one way he could lash out is by attempting some kind of nuclear escalation. Which would be deeply, you know, the most deeply worrying of all the possibilities on the table. We have uh, just but a, of course, yeah, we, we have
1: just about a minute left here, Ambassador. Re- briefly, from you, what are you watching?
4: Well, I, I think what I'm watching, uh, maybe a little bit with naive optimism, but but with some hope, is that the Russians will not succeed uh, in taking over Kiev. They will pound Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol over the next few days. They will deplete fuels and ammunition, and they will not succeed. And then I think people in Russia are going to be asking questions about Putin's leadership.
1: Uh, What has
4: he gotten this country into?
1: Kimberly, briefly, I'll give you the last word here. What will you be watching?
5: I'll be watching um, the border, but I'll also be watching and hoping for food and humanitarian supplies to go to Ukrainians who can't leave right now.
1: That's Kimberly St. Julian Vernon, a historian and a Ph.D. student with Penn State, specializing in Ukraine, Russia, and Eastern Europe. Also with us, Kurt Volker, the former U.S. ambassador to NATO and the former U.S. special representative to Ukraine. He's now a senior international advisor for the Center for European Policy Analysis. And Richard Insur joined us. He's the Ukraine correspondent for The Economist. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Paige Osborne, with help from Catherine Fink, Avery Kleinman, Arfi Getty, Michelle Harvin, and Jacqueline Hill. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.